Welcome to Cato Audio for September 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Randy Barnett talks social justice. Richard Kovacevic of Wells Fargo evaluates Dodd-Frank four years later. Texas Congressman Ted Poe urges greater privacy protection. Author Sidney Powell talks about government cover-ups. And author Brian Doherty discusses political ideology. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Just ahead of Constitution Day, uh, which the Cato Institute celebrates each year with a day-long conference, uh, we're talking about the Cato Institute Supreme Court Review, evaluating the recent term and looking ahead to the next term, uh, as noted by Ilya Shapiro in his uh, forthcoming uh, article that is in the Cato Supreme Court Review, all of the justices agreed on final judgment in 66% of cases uh, this term. We're talking with Ilya Shapiro and Trevor Burris of the Cato Institute. So Ilya, break that down. That's that is a is that a huge margin for nine to nothing decisions? That number has not been seen since 1940. Uh, so yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, and even if you break it down further and look at the uh, opinions where uh, the justices all agree on everything, uh, not just in the judgment, but on you know, there's no splintered concurrences or what have you. Um, still, uh, it was, I think it was a 38 or 39 percent rate, which is the highest, ties the highest for the last 30 years. So yeah, there was a remarkable uh, amount of, of unanimity uh, this term, uh, although in part that's because uh, the rulings uh, were narrower than we would have liked and in part because of docket selection. That is, the court avoided a lot of the interesting, what would have been controversial cases that we would have liked them to grapple with. All right. So let's get started here with the, with the most recent term, Harris v. Quinn. This dealt with uh, the unionization, I guess, suppose compelled unionization of, of home health care workers. Yeah, this has been sort of sweeping the nation. You can actually look at the unions and their strategies. They have documents that they publish that the best way to grow unions is to start unionizing more and more government workers who take government money in some way. So in this situation coming out of Illinois, you have people who work in the homes assisting often you know, invalid or, or very sick people, often family members who get paid from Medicaid, the Medicaid that the sick people receive. And in Illinois, they used sort of this very, very underhanded Rod Blagojevich, you know, inmate number or whatever uh, in, in Illinois State Prison. He used an executive order to turn them in, all in. the in, governor's wing. In the governor's wing of the Illinois prison, yes. Um, that he used an executive order to turn them all into state employees and to unionize them and then to take over the course of $35 million from the paychecks of people who are trying to take care of often their, their kids or their, their parents. And in Harris v. Quinn, the court ruled that you couldn't do that. The way you have to think about it is clearly the privilege of being able to take money from people who don't want to be a part of your union and then spend it on political activity is like giving you the power of being a sub-government. So there has to be some limit because you, you're tax, you're basically taxing people and then spending it privately. There has to be some limit of how many workers can be unionized forcibly and why we're doing that. And that's where the case sort of drew some good lines there. 
And this could end up being the, the sleeper hit, if you will, of the term. Uh, as with campaign finance, as with voting rights, you see this court uh, inching up uh, towards eventual big decisions. And the same thing has happened in the labor law area. We could, five or ten years from now, uh, see uh, an eventual revolution uh, in how public sector unions are treated for constitutional purposes. And this is a big case for that. All right. Uh, another case, Riley v. Worry, the Fourth Amendment case. This was, uh, I, I think, a slam dunk uh, in terms of protecting basic privacy rights. This was a surprise uh, in, in terms of how broad the opinion was. That is, this is the, the cell phone search case. Can police, when they arrest you, not just pat you down to look for weapons or do an administrative search of what you have, but look through your phone and all of its files uh, and whatever you might have there? Uh, and coming out of oral argument, a lot of observers, myself included, thought that the dividing line, strangely enough, would be between smartphones and dumb phones. That is, a flip phone where all you can see is numbers and it's blown up and you can see things. Well, that's a little different than the smartphone that has all your photo albums and Instagrams and you know all the rest of it. Uh, but uh, instead, the court unanimously, without any splintering, drew a bright line. The, the police need a separate warrant to search your phone. Why can't they just hold that phone for a few hours if they actually have probable cause to believe that it, it has evidence of criminal activity? Let them get that warrant. Uh, and that's a big deal uh, for criminal procedure, for, for police practice, uh, and also in the way that the court has generally shied away from big, broad, bright lines in new technology cases. And here they were full steam ahead. It's going to be a huge decision going forward because there are a lot of un unanswered questions about our digital life, which we, which we will be hearing over the next 10, 20 years. And we need to establish these precedents and say your digital life is very important. It's very private. It's very, it was probably very useful that I imagine most of the justices have smartphones, so they understood that getting access to someone's smartphone is a very personal thing. And now that language, there's very strong language that says digital life is protected very highly. Congressman Ted Poe recently spoke at the Cato Institute and sort of extending the thinking, uh, I believe in this case, to the cloud, which is which does not enjoy uh, that same level of get a warrant protection. Mm -hmm. But there's a very that's a very good language in that case to apply to the cr cloud going forward. All right, one more case, well, several more cases here. McCutcheon v. FEC. This was uh, contributions in the aggregate to uh, candidates, which of course were ultimately it comes down to corruption, right? This this standard of corruption. If you give to so many candidates, this is corrupting. And if you give to one fewer, somehow not corrupting. So right. what, what did the court find? The, the only uh, justification that the court has ever accepted for uh, abridging or restricting, regulating political activity uh, is to prevent corruption or the appearance thereof. Uh, and this case was not like Citizens United. It didn't involve corporate or union speech or independent speakers or anything like this. This was direct donations to candidates and campaigns. And as you said, in the aggregate, not the base limits of uh, $2,600 per primary, you know, $5,200 per primary in general, if you can max out uh, to a, a given candidate. This was how much can you give altogether. If you wanted to max out to every uh, to a candidate in every congressional district, say you can't. Um, and and that's, that's odd. And the court struck that down without, again, uh, touching the limits to each individual candidate. Or, unfortunately, I, I would add, uh, 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 breaching the wall between how contributions to candidates and expenditures by candidates uh, are treated. Justice Thomas had a great concurrence on that, uh, saying that there's just as much of a First Amendment restriction on donations and, and, uh, and giving to candidates as there is in the candidate's spending. 
And my nomination for the most terrifying opinion of the year is Justice Breyer's dissent in that case. If you really want an idea of how different views of campaign finance are on two sides of the court, Justice Breyer thinks that we need to be regulating campaign spending to regulate the amount of influence that people have over the marketplace of ideas. It's a terrifying but it's illuminating to see what we're fighting against going forward. McCullen v. Coakley, this was uh, – you know, it, I think a lot of people even – self-described progressive liberals would look at this and say, uh, yeah, this makes sense. A 30, yeah, a, they made a 35-foot free speech buffer zone around abortion clinics at a Massachusetts law. Which is even bigger than an NBA three-point line for those of you picturing it. And it meant that you couldn't even be there. You couldn't sit on the park bench and play Parcheesi if there was a park bench or the glass. You could not be within this area. And the the plaintiff in this case was a 70-year-old woman who sat outside abortion clinics and thought that she had spent $50,000, $50,000 over the years of her own money helping women out, giving different options. She wanted to counsel women going into abortion clinics. She wasn't holding up pictures of dead fetuses or anything like that. And she wasn't allowed to, to approach within a sort of effective range of her speech. And the court struck that down. They said this is a too broad of regulation. You're sweeping in too much honest and good speech. Uh, it, and they still upheld these floating buffer zones, which came through at a case 10 years ago. But at least just the standard 35-foot, no one can go in it. They struck it down unanimously, although there was a little bit of a split about the reasoning. And, and for no reason. The Massachusetts just passed this law and didn't say we need to have 35 feet because otherwise all hell breaks loose. Um, and uh, if you want to learn more about this case, Trevor uh, wrote the article for the forthcoming Supreme Court review. And I learned a new word uh, because of this article, injordinances, uh, as, as Trevor describes it, a combination of an injunction and an ordinance uh, with these uh, you know, going back to the history of labor protests. Fascinating piece. All right. Uh, the NLRB case, what is the name of that? NLRB versus Noel Canning. And Noel Canning is not a person. It's a business. And, and it was kind of funny because <laughs> the lawyer for them is also named Noel Francisco. But anyhow. In that case, dealt with the recess appointments, uh, which I think are fairly notorious at this point. Uh, in 2012, Obama decided basically that the Senate was not actually in session when it said it was in session and rammed through some appointees to the National Labor Relations Board and also Richard Cordray to the CFPB, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Those were invalidated unanimously. I would predicted this since the few months after that came down, I was working on a brief at the very early stages and I was like, this is going to go down unanimously. And Justice Breyer, amazingly, I was, I was very pleased that he stayed on the right side, said the president cannot decide if the Senate is in session. That is over the line. Now, isn't part of this the fact that the Supreme Court has never dealt frontally with this particular issue and so perhaps it's an, a rare opportunity to draw that big bright line? Right. And uh, Justice Scalia in his furious concurrence as it was called uh, described Breyer's theory and the idea that the president was doing this over – enabled by attorneys general, surprise, surprise, uh, over you know, hundreds of years. Um, or, well, that's actually in dispute how long it's been going on. But anyhow, Scalia characterized this idea as uh, executive power by um, – Prescription, wasn't it? No. It, uh, Adverse possession. Adverse possession. That that, that's the one. 
Um, uh, and, and indeed, Scalia r- uh, read this concurrence from the bench. It was that much of a disagreement with Breyer's pragmatism that, well, the line is uh, you know 10 days because that's just what the practice has been, uh, whereas Scalia uh, and, and the three other justices that joined him agreed with the lower court in saying that, look, recess appointment means appointment during an actual recess between sessions of the Senate for vacancies that arise during that recess. And in general, going forward, I don't think we'll see very many of them. Uh, ironically enough, the House's power has increased because of this decision, because the Senate cannot recess for more than three days without the consent of the other House. Very interesting. Okay, the big one, Burwell v. Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood, I believe. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is the case that that drew so much attention immediately uh, before and after uh, it uh, was argued and came down. And uh, there's so much that is misstated about this case. This is about Obamacare or big government more broadly creating clashes, social clashes, uh, creating a nuisance, a legal nuisance as it, as it were. Um, so Obamacare requires certain preventative care. And then the uh, Department of Health and Human Services expanded on that and regu- issued a regulation uh, requiring, among other things, coverage of 20 different contraceptives, four of which... Uh, prevent the implantation of a fertilized egg, which some people consider to be uh, abortifacient and against their religion. And so uh, this case involved commercial businesses and corporations that were privately held uh, and that did not want to uh, cover their employees uh, for these four particular what they considered abortifacients. Uh, and this wasn't a pure First Amendment claim. In fact, it wasn't a First Amendment claim at all, as the, course, as the court eventually decided, because we have this Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was passed uh, unanimously uh, and signed by President Clinton in 1993, um, that says that if the government is substantially burdening religion, it has to show a compelling interest uh, and that there's no other less burdensome way of achieving that interest. And here, uh, the the court majority found that the government uh, didn't show why it couldn't, say, provide public clinics or tax credits or even the types of accommodations that it's offered to nonprofits, which are being litigated separately. There are, there are other types of issues there. But anyhow, um, uh, non, very few members of the court, only two, took issue with even the corporate form, which uh, some people thought would be at issue in this case because uh, unless Congress specifies otherwise, its statutes cover all legal persons, uh, no matter how uh, constituted. So generally, a, a fairly straightforward ruling uh, that has been a major become an inflection point in the culture wars and the war on women and all of this other narrative. Uh, but really, all it says is you know you can access anybody can still access whatever legal products they want, uh, but the employer does not have to pay for them if they object on legal grounds. And some of the th- religious grounds. Some of the things that you've heard from most commentators on the left have just been off base. The the court did not rule to impose religious views of, of corporations onto their employees or things like that. And also the court acknowledged that abor- uh, abortion or abortifacients, birth control, uh, these four drugs are very important to women's health. There's a lot of people who said, oh, these are – they said these are so important. And they also said that their Hobby Lobby and Conestoga work are wrong to believe that it's abortifacient. All that stuff is irrelevant. They believe it. That's all that really matters. You don't want courts deciding that your religious beliefs are silly. That opens up a huge bag that you don't want to get into. And the the religious beliefs of the corporation – I believe that's the nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition exactly. part of it. Exactly. The religious beliefs of the corporation are just the beliefs of the people – 
who are in the corporation, which are certainly being in closely upon. held, closely held, small families, and it's it, a fairly narrow ruling. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, the same thing could come up with, uh, say, Whole Foods in the future, who also have values as a corporation. It's been way blown out of proportion, and it's not. We're not going to see many more cases like it. I actually have a book coming out on Hobby Lobby uh, in late October, early November, and uh, amusingly, the title escapes me at the moment. It's a it's a co-authored book with David Gans of the Constitutional Accountability Center. Came out of a series of debates that we had at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. But uh, if you follow uh, Cato, look for that end of October, beginning of November. All right, uh, we're going to talk about moving forward a little bit here. Uh, what the court m- might be looking at or will be looking at in the coming term, Trevor. Uh, off. Offline, you described that this next term might be pretty boring. Yes, that's. Uh, I guess we're spoiled the last four years uh, <laughs> since I've been a Cato, and even going back before that, have just been incredibly exciting. By st- Supreme Court often decides exciting cases, but it's been a little, little over the top. We have some interesting cases, but there's not going to be so far any of the anything that's been hugely taken up by the court. So that's two issues, be a big two news. issues that will be coming up uh, potentially. Uh, gay marriage most likely will be coming up again. I think uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg sort of hinted at the oral argument during uh, the the last go round that we'll stop here now. We'll scoop up the rest later. Well, uh, so far there is no circuit split. That is, uh, all of the appellate courts that have decided uh, challenges to uh, state marriage laws have ruled in favor of the challengers and struck down uh, restrictions against same-sex marriage. Just like Scalia said they would do. Uh, right. In his Windsor opinion, that, 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 that uh, dissent from, uh, from the striking down of, uh, of, of DOMA. Um, and uh, we'll see. There's still a chance to create a circuit split. Uh, it, it could be that the court takes one of these cases uh, later rather than sooner, maybe not this term. Um, but that certainly, you know, it seems like the, the legal momentum has only accelerated since the, the court punted on California's Prop 8. Now, does that mean that the court might not ever end up taking this again? It, it, it may well mean that. They, um, they, they probably don't want to. Uh, they don't want Scalia to yell at them and tell them he was right the entire time. All right. So Halbig, which uh, a case that is well known to uh, devotees of the Cato Institute because of Jonathan Adler and Michael Cannon doing yeoman's work trying to get – uh, bring this case to the to the forefront. Some courts had ruled against them in in various cases that that uh, they worked on, but of course the D.C. Circuit ruled in their favor. So this is an issue with uh, again not the text of Obamacare, but a regulation promulgated pursuant to it. And here is our favorite agency, the IRS. Um, despite the clear language of of the text of the Affordable Care Act that says that subsidies or tax credits are to be provided to people who buy their uh, insurance policies from exchanges created by the state or established by the state. And the IRS interpreted that established by the state to mean any exchanges, including those established by the federal government in states. Uh, And we now have two court rulings going uh, opposite directions. Uh, As you said, Halbig uh, from the uh, the, uh, D.C. Circuit uh, for the challengers. Uh, there's already a cert petition from the other case, King, out of the Fourth Circuit. And there are two other cases going on in Indiana and in Oklahoma that are uh, uh, less farther advanced. Uh, so we'll, we'll see uh, further appellate decisions there. But ultimately, I think this is something the Supreme Court will have to resolve. 
uh, and I hope they take it sooner rather than later because there's a whole lot of instability uh, uh, in the business community, in the economy, and indeed in the rule of law. My prediction is I predict they are not going to take it just because they don't want to take it. And if they didn't strike down Obamacare, but they can figure out ways to talk behind the scenes to try but, but and But Trevor, I have an op-ed coming out on this issue, which will clearly uh, enhance them from taking it. <laughs> Possibly. But I don't. I think the Supreme Court really doesn't want to deal with this case again. They don't want to be put in the situation of being accused of using a a loophole or, or a statutory error, a drafting error to take away health care. All this stuff is, is inaccurate, but the, even the accusation can hurt the court. I think they're gonna, the, the circuit split will resolve itself uh, with the en banc decision. Just to be clear, it's not just a drafting error or, or Obamacare was so hastily put together and, you know, they didn't know what was in one part of the section or the other. Um, uh, you know, that, that may well be the case, but there's uh, actually – uh, evidence that it was congressional intent to the extent we care about it to incentivize states to create these exchanges by only allowing uh, uh, the subsidies for those states uh, where they where they do. And as uh, Michael Cannon points out regularly, intent is only uh, a relevant consideration when the text is unclear. clearly unclear. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us about uh, Ilya, the, the volume that you've been working on that uh, will be coming out I mean, it's just a furious process that you guys go through to get this document put together and released on Constitution Day. It's just a few months between the end of the term and Constitution Day. So tell us about the articles that are that are coming out. Indeed, and the uh, the articles are due August first. Um, Richard Epstein, uh, known to many, uh, a legal lion, legal libertarian lion, uh, writes on Hobby Lobby, a very fascinating case. He says he got the court got it right for the wrong reasons. Um, uh, takes issue with uh, what we've what Trevor and I described about Hobby Lobby. Uh, very interesting article. Well, by Trevor, I mentioned on on the injordinances and and abortion buffer zones. Uh, David Bernstein, another Cato adjunct scholar, professor at George Mason, has a fascinating piece on Schutte, the quasi-affirmative uh, action case. Uh, another senior fellow, Nick Rosencrantz, writes about Bond, that typical case of adultery, federalism, and chemical weapons. Um, a, a great compendium. We, for those of you who, who follow our amicus briefs, uh, we reprint our, our, our truthiness funny brief that uh, – I filed with uh, with P.J. O'Rourke that that Trevor was uh, one of the co-authors. So it's uh, it's chock full of uh, of good stuff, uh, as well as a piece that that uh, surveys the the coming term. All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, be be sure to join us on uh, September seventeenth here at the Cato Institute. And if you can't, we'll be posting a lot of that uh, after the fact online, and you can get your copy of the Cato Supreme Court Review as well on September seventeenth. Visit our website Cato.org. Four years after the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Financial Protection Act was signed into law, there are many open questions about what the act has achieved and what lies ahead for the U.S. financial system, especially with so many regulations that have yet to be written or implemented. Richard Kovacevic, Chairman Emeritus of Wells Fargo & Company, delivered the keynote address at a two-day conference co-sponsored by the Cato Institute in July. Let me summarize why I think that enacting the largest increase in banking regulation in history was a huge mistake. 
that it wouldn't have prevented the past crisis nor future ones, and will likely deny credit availability and other banking services to the bottom 25% of consumers on the economic ladder who are most in need of. It was created and passed not with sound judgment of what really caused the financial crisis, but as a political response to the understandable outrage of, of Americans by the ill-conceived creation of TARP, one of the worst decisions in US economic history, which intensified and compounded the financial crisis rather than solving it and created the impression that Wall Street was bailed out and mainstream wasn't. Without TARP, there would not have been a Dodd-Frank bail, as we now know it, nor the demonizing and vilifying of the entire banking industry. Only 20 institutions perpetrated this crisis, and all of them should be punished, perhaps even criminally. Half of these institutions were investment banks, half were savings and loans. None, none were mainstream commercial banks. So why are 6,000 banks being punished for something they didn't do? Why isn't the focus on reforming on those regulators who had the power to stop these 20 perpetrators and who completely, and who completely failed to do their job? What about Congress admitting its role in allowing Fannie and Freddie to provide the financial support that caused subprime mortgages to grow from a 5% market share of the mortgage market to about 50% at the peak of the crisis? This share gain in the crisis would never have occurred without Fannie and Freddie and other government agencies purchasing or insuring about 70%, 70% of all subprime mortgages. I personally warn regulators and leaders in Congress in face-to-face -face meetings, in annual reports, and in speeches of the eventual collapse of Fannie and Freddie for over 20 years. Similarly, I warn bank regulators that subprime mortgages were worse than toxic waste two years before the crisis started. So did many others. Neither Congress nor regulators heeded such advice. Was Dodd-Frank and demonizing the entire bank industry a coordinated effort to deflect where the blame should be placed? Today, 6,000 commercial banks and their boards and management are spending most of their time not with customers and not helping the, uh, the economy, but on, uh, on, but on compliance, regulatory changes, and litigation for something they didn't even do. Regulators blame bank board members for improper oversight and management. How many times have you heard that? Really? There are upwards of 100 regulators at large Banks, those regulators have an average of over 15 years experience in the financial service industry and work full time at these banks. Bank directors, they have roughly 12 members who spend about a day a month on bank business who are not experts in the financial service industry for if they were, they would not be considered independent by the SEC. So who is more responsible for insufficient oversight of bank management? 100 full time regulators? or about 12 one-day-a-month bank directors? Who gets criticized the most for bank failures? Does this town get it? <laughs> we also need to immediately replace the litigation risk associated with the ability to pay language that is in the Dodd-Frank bill. Mainstream commercial banks have been making loans to lower-income consumers and those with credit blemishes on their records for decades. They were not among the 20 institutions who appropriate perpetrated this crisis. They did not originate loans to subprime borrowers who could never pay them back, as the SNLs did. Nor did they buy and insure them, as Fannie and Freddie did. Nor did they package, sell, and distribute them, as investment banks did. Nor did they rate them AAA, as rating agencies did. Mainstream banks have the experience and expertise to make loans to appropriate borrowers and take the credit risk. But they cannot and will not take litigation risks. Because of this litigation risk, it is more difficult today 
to qualify for a mortgage than in any other time in my 40 years in this business, and I've been in the mortgage business for 40 years. Mortgages are one of the most valuable assets the general public owns. Housing is critical to economic recoveries and is usually one of the first industries to increase employment after a recession. And the Fed said, we don't really understand how the mortgage business isn't doing very well at the moment. The housing market, I guess I should say. It doesn't have to be this way. Because of the litigation risk, most community banks have closed their mortgage departments and aren't even making mortgages anymore. A tragedy for small communities until uh, uh, tragedy for small communities. Until the litigation language of Don Frank has changed, the bottom 25% will not get loans, stifling economic growth, and denying this group, th this group who need banks the most, access to financial services. By the way, if the current qualified mortgage exemption of 43% of income would have been in effect before the financial crisis, 25% of all homes that were foreclosed would have passed the test. Extending credit is much more complicated than congressional mandates and simplified guidelines can solve. Get rid of the ability to pay litigation risks and indict any institution or individuals who behave in a criminal or predatory fashion. We also need to replace our current fiscal and monetary policies with those policies that worked well in the past so we can get our economy growing again. As a result of all the mistakes I mentioned this morning, our economy is growing at the slowest recovery pace in history. Unemployment continues to be high. Our labor participation rate is, is at an all-time low. Our budget deficits are the highest in history. And Americans have lost confidence in our leaders, in themselves, and our free enterprise system, a system that has created the greatest wealth of any nation in history. We have also lost the respect, the admiration, and confidence of the rest of the world. Hayek called social justice a mirage. And when you ask a social justice advocate how much should be redistributed, the answer often is simply this, more. So says Randy Barnett, senior fellow at the Cato Institute. At Cato University, Barnett argued that this kind of redistribution demands a large, intrusive government to keep tabs on who has what. So let me begin by defining what I mean by social justice and legal moralism. So the social justice crowd holds some version of the view that everyone is entitled to some quantum of stuff. And if they don't have whatever it is that a particular social justice theorist thinks they ought to have, we need a coercive government with the power to take from those who have this stuff and give it to those who don't. Now this sometimes also entails that no one should have any or too much more stuff than anyone else. But whether the standard is absolute or comparative, social justice consists of everyone having whatever they are supposed to have, according to the advocate of social justice. That's it. It's not really much more complicated than that. Now, there are at least three fundamental problems associated with this position. The first is that there is no single and salient answer to what everyone is supposed to have. Almost everyone who advocates for social justice has either a different view of this, or more commonly, in my experience, no firm view they are willing to articulate. For example, try asking someone who says that the rich are not paying their fair, their fair share of taxes. And then you ask them, okay, well, what is the fair share? You will either get a blank look or a single word answer. And that answer is more. more. Yes, that answer is more, right. 
Whatever the, well, whatever the um, well-off are now paying, they should be paying more. more. Right. Whatever the less well-off have, they should have more. Right. How much more? Not saying. Not saying how much more. Just more. Just more. Now, this lack of specificity makes crafting actual policies extremely unstable. There is no core position around which any political consensus can be formed. There is no identifiable limit beyond which the policy of redistribution can be deemed unjust. In the absence of a consensus, whatever policy may actually be implemented will be politically unstable. Only the subgroup who favors the prevailing plan will be satisfied that social justice is being done. No matter how much redistribution of income or wealth is adopted, there will always be cries for more or different forms, which will greatly undermine the security of everyone's possessions and the ability to plan. And then there are the many who will persist, like us, in, in objecting to using force to achieve social justice. Now, this is just not a recipe for peaceful, a peaceful and contented society. A second problem is that achieving any particular pattern of distribution will require highly intrusive government administrative mechanisms. Some subset of society will need to be given special powers to collect the information on everyone's wealth or income. I mean, it depends on if you're a wealth social justice person or an income social justice person. There's a right, those are two different things, by the way. But you're going to have to have some mechanisms that can collect the information on everybody's wealth or income or both. And that's not some accidental occurrence that can somehow be avoided. It's absolutely necessary to know from whom to take the wealth and to whom to give it, according to the approved pattern of social justice. Collecting this information will necessarily be privacy invasive, and the existence of a database with such information can lead to the intimidation of dissidents. Third, and finally, a problem that was identified most prominently by Robert Nozick, a wonderful guy who I was told last night is still the object of sexual uh, fantasies by young graduate students everywhere, uh, whatever level of redistribution is adopted will require the continual use of force to achieve and maintain over time. The natural outcome of liberty will inevitably destroy whatever pattern of holdings is adopted as the, society, as the societally just one. In addition to collecting the relevant information to discover how actual holdings differ from this pattern, some subset of persons will need to be empowered to use force to continually adjust holdings so that they may conform. These three fundamental problems lead to the following mega problem with social justice policies. Any institution powerful enough to gather this information and enforce this pattern will be highly intrusive and enormously dangerous. Not only will it have the exceptional power to violate the background rights that libertarians advocate as the prerequisite for pursuing happiness in a social context, it will have the power to deviate from the pattern of any particular so that any particular social justice advocate advocates. These institutions of coercion may adopt a different version of social justice or other ends entirely that will violate the conception of social justice favored by any given proponent. And given that there is no uniquely salient pattern of distribution, the highly contested nature of social justice makes the potential for abuse even greater. That one cannot prove one's conception is, right, is the right one 
makes the perpetual struggle to control the institutions of coercion inevitable, unless dissenters are somehow suppressed or eliminated, which historically is what happens to dissidents in societies that are committed to social justice. It's not enough, therefore, for social justice advocates to identify a uniquely salient pattern of holdings as the just one, though this is essential. They must also identify the structural features of a legal system that can assure that the pattern they think is just and only the just pattern will be adopted and that the powers required to monitor and perpetuate the just pattern will not be captured and abused to the detriment of social justice. Okay, now let's talk about legal moralism, change our focus a little bit. Legal moralists focused their attention not on how much stuff each person has, but on how each person ought to act when living his or her life. Each person should behave just the way legal moralists believe he or she should behave or be sanctioned by law. Legal moralists have a comparable set of problems as the social justice theorists. Indeed, we can simply port over much of the above analysis of social justice to legal moralism. Like social justice proponents, legal moralists disagree amongst themselves on the correct set of moral behaviors. Of course, all moralists, all legal moralists would maintain that acts like murder, rape, robbery, and theft, which violate the rights of others, should be banned, a belief they share in common with libertarians. For this reason, to preserve the distinction between libertarianism and legal moralism, it is important to distinguish between justice, not social justice, I mean real justice, Justice, which is what I was referring to by, which I was using natural rights theory to elaborate on, on the one hand, which consists of prohibiting wrongful conduct that violates the rights of others, that's justice, and morality or ethics, which evaluates the full gamut of human action to distinguish good from bad conduct. So I think it's very useful to distinguish between right versus wrong conduct, use that phraseology to talk about uh, uh, rightful behavior and wrongful behavior, that's a matter of justice, that's a matter of rights, and good and bad behavior, that's a matter of ethics, that's a matter of how we should live and treat other people. Now you can use these terms any way you like, but that's a useful way of using appropriate, approved, moral terms to distinguish between one, right versus wrong, and the other, good versus bad. Now all libertarians, and most everyone else, believes that force is justified to prohibit unjust or wrongful behavior. But legal moralists would extend the use of force to reach some or all immoral or unethical conduct as well. But while the consensus that murder, rape, robbery, and theft are wrongful and may be legally prohibited is widespread, indeed, it's universal, there is no comparable consensus about how all people ought to act or which moral code should be imposed on a society. But even assuming some uniquely salient moral code were identified, like social justice advocates, legal moralists require a powerful and intrusive set of legal institutions to gather information on how everyone is behaving in public and in private to detect whether they are behaving morally or not. Any institution that's powerful enough to accomplish this would be susceptible to enormous abuse. And this potential for abuse is even greater than it would be if a uniquely um, salient moral code were capable of identif being identified so that those who hold power could at least be held to those identifiable aims.
A unanimous Supreme Court recently declared that our networked mobile devices merit the highest level of Fourth Amendment protection against government searches, since these devices often contain more sensitive information than even the most exhaustive search of a house would reveal. But vast amounts of our data sit in the cloud and somehow do not merit that same level of protection. Ted Poe, a Republican U.S. representative from Texas, says it's time for reform. He spoke at the Cato Institute in July. Back in colonial days, the British were determined to make sure that goods brought into the United States were not smuggled, because if they were smuggled, they didn't pay, the colonists didn't pay the tax that was due the king. So they had uh, came up with an idea to search the colonists, primarily just their businesses and their homes, to see if any of that smu those smuggled goods came in without paying the tax to the king. And they invented this document called the Writs of Assistance, which was a flowery term for a general warrant for the British military could go into someone's residence or business and look for really anything, but primarily looking for smuggled goods where people didn't pay the tax that was due the king. This irritated the colonists a great deal. After all, they did have a war of independence. Uh, one of the reasons was because of the writs of assistance. And after the war was over, we got our independence from Britain. We wrote a constitution. And then they came up with a few Bill of Rights, 10 of those, that really had their founding and purpose to prevent government from intruding the right of privacy of specific individuals under the new country called the United States, which led to the enactment of the Bill of Rights, primarily the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, their houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by an oath or affirmation, and particularly, excuse me, describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. What that means is this, that if law enforcement wants to search something in your residence or in your effects or in your property, the officer that wants to do the searching must go before an independent magistrate, the buffer between law enforcement and the citizen, and swear out an oath under oath, a warrant to search a specific place for a specific thing or person. That's on the back end of the Fourth Amendment. It has to be very specific. It has to be specific enough uh, under our law that if the judge signed the warrant, the judge could give the warrant to a different person, and that law enforcement officer could read this warrant, know exactly where to go, know exactly what he's supposed to be seizing, and who he should be arresting if there is an arrest. That's how specific the warrants have to be today. And that was the reason the Fourth Amendment was written the way that it was written. But the purpose is to secure privacy of the individual. So let's use a hypothetical. Not a it's not specific 
uh, really too specific, but it's a general hypothetical uh, that I would like to just talk about. We have two notorious outlaws in Texas. That's where I'm from. Uh, one of them is Ollie Oglethorpe, and the other one is Bobby Joe Oglethorpe. They are bad guys. They are bank robbers. They rob people. They rob banks. And let's say that they decide to come to Washington, and they plot and scheme to rob the congressional credit union over in the Longworth building. They go inside. They rob the place. They take the loot, and they make away their escape and get away. And they hide somewhere in Washington, D.C. That's all we know. They're not captured. But we know probably that the two individuals uh, are somewhere in Washington. So if law enforcement decided, OK, we're going to go get Ollie Oglethorpe and Bobby Joe Oglethorpe, we know they're in Washington. They would go to a judge. They would say to the judge, we know they're in Washington. We know they're in zip code 20003. But that's really all we know. We would like a warrant to go into all of the places in zip code 20003 and find Bobby Joe Oglethorpe and his brother Ollie, and most importantly, get the loot. There is not a judge that would sign the warrant to allow law enforcement to go into every building and residence. We all know that's absurd. There is no way that would occur because the residents or the place in the warrant is not specific enough to go to that location and find the Oglethorpes and or the money. That would be a general warrant. That would be uh, warrants that maybe the British would have imposed back in colonial days. Because the Fourth Amendment prohibits that type of conduct. However, let's assume that the Oglethorpes have spent some time on the internet discussing this criminal activity, discussing where they're going to hide, where they hid the money, and some of their other criminal enterprises. If law enforcement had probable cause to believe that occurred, then they could go to the appropriate judge and get a specific warrant and maybe go to one of these folks here and get that information, their emails. But let's say they don't have probable cause. They just don't have enough information to convince a judge they have probable cause to believe the information is there that they're looking for. So what do they do? They wait six months. And all of a sudden, on six months and one day, without the use of a warrant stating probable cause, they may seize that information without probable cause because the law says you can seize it. Now, one would think that that's absurd, that just because it is six months and one day that the, the warrant uh, requirement should not be required. But that is currently the law, because the law was written too long ago to keep up with modern technology. The Electronic Communications Privacy Act, as Julian said, was written in 1986. The internet and all of our electronic knowledge and storage has changed since then. So because of that, Zoe Lofgren and myself and others have sponsored uh, one piece of legislation, and there's other pieces of legislation. We're 
members of Congress have signed on to, to fix that problem and guarantee the right of privacy if email storage is over six months old, stored in the cloud somewhere. In Licensed to Lie, attorney Sidney Powell takes readers through a series of disturbing events, missteps, and cover-ups in our federal criminal justice system. According to Powell, the malfeasance stretches across all three branches of our government, from the White House to the U.S. Senate to members of the judiciary. Even worse, the law itself is becoming pernicious. Americans can now be prosecuted, convicted, and imprisoned for actions that are not crimes. Powell spoke at the Cato Institute in July. Robert H. Jackson was one of our great Supreme Court justices, and as Attorney General, he gave a speech on April 1, 1940, that has been enshrined in legal history. He talked about the special role of a federal prosecutor and how important it is for that prosecutor to seek justice and not convictions. He explained that at its best, a prosecutor is one of the most beneficent forces in our society, but at his worst, he is one of the worst because he has such complete control over what can happen to an individual and so such broad discretion. A prosecutor can indict someone, he can have the case processed quietly and secretly, or he can expose it all to the public and uh, humiliate and, and degrade the person as much as possible through the process. He has control over where the person goes to prison uh, to a large extent. The government likes to say only the Bureau of Prisons decides that, but that's not accurate at all. The prosecutor has a lot of input in that regard, and particularly in the cases discussed in the book, that's true. But yet there's no overriding supervision of prosecutors. You'll see that throughout the book also. Their discretion is virtually unbounded. We like to think of the grand jury system as being one that protects citizens, but it doesn't. Grand juries are virtually a rubber stamp for prosecutors. There's hardly a prosecutor in the country who couldn't get an indictment against a potato out of a grand jury if that's what they wanted to do or get a case no-build if that's what they want. So the checks and balances need a serious revision. It's also important for federal judges to pay very close attention to trials. It used to be, I think, at least in my experience under 10 different United States attorneys in three districts across the country over a period of 10 years, it used to be that judges could trust the prosecutors to tell them what the law was and to get the facts straight. No U.S. attorney I ever worked with would have tolerated for two seconds the behavior that I saw that caused me to write the book. They all were adamant that we do it right, that we seek justice, that we be fair, and that we carefully exercise our discretion to prosecute only cases that we had all the evidence and were sure the person was guilty. We didn't have time to go or interest in going to look to find something to pin on someone. That was not our job. No U.S. attorney I ever worked with believed that was our job. And we didn't stack counts of indictments either. 
we would indict on one, two, three, maybe four offenses, assuming we had the evidence racked up to prove all of those beyond a reasonable doubt, with no question in our minds that that was what should happen in the case. And we produced evidence favorable to the defense that the Supreme Court called Brady evidence. That was our job. I have stood in the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and confessed error. When the trial lawyers got something wrong, I would tell the Fifth Circuit, we screwed that up. In fact, if you run through the Westlaw system, the word botched, B-O-T-C-H-E-D, you will find a quote in a footnote <laughs> of a decision by Irving Goldberg where he quotes me as explaining that the DEA agents botched it. I think that's the only time the word appears in Westlaw. <laughs> and the quote was accurate. I haven't run that search in a while. Maybe I should do it again to see if anybody else has used it. But it's in there. Lots of people want to know why I wrote the book and why I wrote the book now. Uh, the answer to the first question is I just could not stand what I had seen. It broke my heart. I have practiced before the Fifth Circuit for more than 30 years. I'm not going to say how many more. My youthful countenance belies that alone, so I'm going to keep that secret. But throughout my practice, I have bragged on and applauded and loved the Fifth Circuit. For it to have been given the repeated chances I gave it to correct the egregious errors in this case and not to get it right was just more than I could stand. And then when the bar associations for these respective lawyers also failed to do anything about it, I felt like I had to speak up. I know I'm not the only lawyer that has seen this kind of injustice. As Judge Kaczynski said in his dissent in the United States versus Olson, there is an epidemic of Brady violations abroad in the land. It is a significant problem. It affects the fundamental fairness of all our proceedings. And if the prosecutors can do what they did to the people discussed in this book, who are, were Merrill Lynch executives, one was a United States senator, others were other business executives, all of whom had led stellar lives to the best of everyone's knowledge, worked in their communities, contributed to charities, done everything right, and believed in the system. To have prosecutors literally make up crimes against them and then be able to push those through the system to conviction and imprisonment and have federal district judges in Houston and then the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals not get it right was simply heartbreaking to me. So that is why I had to write the book. I knew it had to be done by somebody with some credibility. Defendants can tell you about all the injustices they've suffered, and everybody goes, oh, well, you know, he was a convicted felon. So I just felt like it was time that some lawyer stand up and speak out. When I did it, I had no idea what the reception would be. I didn't know whether anybody would pay the slightest bit of attention or not. It turns out people are paying attention, and so I thank each of you for being here to pay that attention to this issue because it is so important. And there but for the grace of God go any one of us.
If you want to find a monument to libertarianism, look around. So says Brian Doherty, author of Radicals for Capitalism. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Cato University, held in Rancho Bernardo, California. Where the socialists went wrong, uh, mostly, was misunderstanding th this last key element of the classical liberal tradition, uh, the idea that Adam Smith expressed in his wonderful metaphor of the invisible hand. Uh, modern libertarians use the language of Hayek more often, and we kind of highfalutingly call it spontaneous order. And this is the idea that workable, valuable, and wealth-generating orders can and do arise without any visible hand of control ordering the people and the institutions of the world according to a deliberate plan. The socialists misunderstood this and thought that they needed a deliberate plan uh, to make the world a better place. They were mistaken in this, of course, and in that mistake, they were led to creating a, a world, uh, which I'm going to explain to you in a little bit, paraphrasing the words of uh, Benjamin Tucker, uh, one of my favorite 19th century uh, anarchists of the libertarian tradition. Tucker was one of these people who saw himself as a socialist in a way because he thought he was defending the same goals of the state socialists, which was demolishing privilege and making a better world for the common person, but uh, he understood that the socialist approach to this was, uh, was mistaken. Uh, and I, I really enjoy the way he kind of goes on and on about this. I, I'm gonna tighten it a little bit, but it sort of hits you with the rhythms of exactly how wrong the socialists went. Um, uh, and he, he distinguished the bad socialism as state socialism. And, said that state socialism is the doctrine that all the affairs of men should be managed by the government regardless of individual choice. Uh, Marx, who he considered the founder of state socialism, concluded that the only way to abolish the monopolies that were keeping the common man down was to centralize and consolidate all industrial and commercial interests, all productive and distributive agencies in one vast monopoly in the hands of the state. The government would then be the banker, the manufacturer, the farmer, the carrier and the merchant, and the, in these capacities must suffer no competition. Uh, this is me again here. I hope as, as I say this, you sort of recognize a little bit of the world that we've ended up in right now. Uh, not, not, not quite to the point where they're banning all competition, but it's interesting to the extent that government is trying to do all of these things that, uh, that Tucker feared socialism would lead to. Uh, back to Tucker, to the, to the individual can belong only the products to be consumed, not the means of producing them. A man can own his clothes and his food, but not the sewing machine that makes his shirts or the spade which digs his potatoes. Society must seize the capital which belongs to it by the ballot if it can, by the revolution if it must. Every man will be a wage receiver and the state the only wage payer. Uh, and he summed up where this would all lead to then is... is uh, a state system of medicine by whose practitioners the sick must inevitably be treated, a state system of hygiene prescribing what all must and must not eat, drink, wear, and do, a state code of morals which will not content itself with punishing crime but will prohibit what the majority decide to be a vice, a state system of instruction which will do away with all private schools, academies, and colleges, and a state nursery in which all children must be brought up in common at the public expense. Uh, while luckily here in America, I, I don't think any of that has been monopolized by the state, I think we can recognize that the state has at least 
stuck its hands into all of that. And how did that happen? If, if as I said, America was, was founded on very classical liberal uh, principles, uh, which is, is very true. In fact, American historian Pauline Meyer uh, summed up after her diligent study of pretty much everything that every person in the founding era was reading, thinking, and saying, uh, she summed up that uh, the Declaration of Independence, which she treated as, as the key document summing up the spirit of the Americans of the late 18th uh, century, summarized succinctly ideas defended and explained at greater length by a long list of 17th century writers that included Milton, Algernon Sidney, and John Locke who continued and developed that Whig tradition, Whig, as Tom told you last night, is sort of another name of the time for the liberal tradition. Uh, by the time of the revolution, these ideas had become, in their generalized form, captured by Jefferson in the Declaration, a political orthodoxy whose basic principles colonists could pick up from sermons, from newspapers, or even from school books, without ever having to actually read a systematic work of political theory. That, that's a great summation, by the way, of the, the, the task that faces those of us who want to turn the world back in a classical liberal direction, this notion that we have to make these ideas so popular and so widespread that they just become the thing that everyone thinks. And I will say, as someone who has been in this business for a lot of years, a few years, uh, that we have enormously gotten further to that goal than we were when I started in this business, which, which is another encouraging thing to consider. But that's where we began in America, and we've ended up here. And, uh, you know, how did that happen? The, 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 the degeneration of classical liberalism, which survives as what we now call libertarianism into what is now called liberalism, um, is one of the most interesting conundrums of political and ideological history. I, I do not feel like I've ever seen one convincing answer. What I'm going to present to you is sort of a set of answers, none of which are meant to be singular, but sort of a discussion of some of the trends going on from the 1880s to the 1940s, most of them derived from other modern classical liberal libertarian uh, thinkers about why this might have happened. A, a great book to study this if you want to see it from the Beginnings, a book written in 1887 by a uh, sort of Herbert Spencer disciple named Bruce Smith called Liberty and Liberalism, is a marvelous book to read if you want to see someone who's watching it happen around him, getting really upset about it. And uh, one of his theories was that people looked around at the legacy of real liberalism over the course of the 19th and 18th century, the average working man, and they saw, hey, Liberal reforms have benefited me. They've made my life better. My, my corn is cheaper. I can you know, work in more occupations. Everything's better for me. So liberalism is about making things better for me. And so uh, the, the regnant ideas in, 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 uh, in British first and then later uh, American politics became the notion that government was not just there to make things better by getting out of the way, which had been the trend for the last couple of centuries, but it should make things better by actively trying to do things. Um, on the more philosophical level, utilitarianism uh, became far more in vogue in the second half of the 19th, first half of the 20th century. Uh, George Smith, a great scholar of liberalism and a teacher to me and, and, and to Tom, uh, sort of posits that the, the French Revolution is a little bit to blame for this, that the French Revolution was seen by many people as kind of the scary place where taking this whole right to revolution, a Lockean thing, 
uh, natural rights, uh, taking it a little too far, and it scared people. Um, and uh, you know, if, if you're thinking in utilitarian terms, that can lead to a little bit of the sort of scientific hubris. If you figure, okay, it's about making the world a better place, and we smart people can figure out how to make the world a better place, and we can actively shape the world to make things better for people. Again, that's missing the insight of the spontaneous order, and uh, it, it, it gives far more, uh, far more room for control of people's lives than is actually warranted by its own successes. Um, uh, again, on the philosophical level, empiricism got more into vogue, and this whole notion of natural rights started to seem after Gen Jeremy Bentham as like, oh, this is just a silly superstition. It's a, I can't touch a right, you know, what, what right? We don't have any rights. Um, the middle class, uh, which of course was one of the great pushers and benefiters of classical liberalism, uh, had become more entrenched and possibly lost a little bit of their radical edge uh, that they had. Um, in the American context, I've seen some convincing arguments that uh, Protestant pietism uh, became a bit of a problem. You had all these very good, fine Christian people with a sterling do-gooder sense that they were going to reform the world and make it a better place, and they were going to use government as a tool to do that, and this really fed a lot into progressivism in the uh, American context. Um, by the time World War I came around, uh, it was almost over for liberalism in the classic sense. The war itself uh, sort of obviously led to a great deal of wartime centralization, most of which, a lot of which we've never backed down from uh, ever since. It created an enormous sense of cynicism about the world before it, and classical liberalism was a part of that world. So a lot of people just after World War I wanted to wipe their hands of everything that was both good and bad about 19th century liberalism. So in this 1880 to 1940 period, you saw liberalism being attacked, real liberalism, on all sides. You had nationalists and imperialists condemning it for, for essentially being too peaceful. You had socialists attacking it for supporting the, the so-called anarchy of free markets instead of the science of central planning. Uh, church leaders were attacking it because it was too materialistic and egoistic. Um, and uh, Liberalism, of course, had, had been such a great thing for Western culture that for various reasons in the West, these opponents of it never bothered to openly adopt a new term. They just sort of kept calling themselves liberals. They hijacked the term, and they kept it. Um, and uh, Dan Klein, a, an economist in the libertarian tradition, is leading a movement now to try to reclaim it. I, I think it's way too late for that, but uh, it's, you know, it, it's always a good argument starter, at least, if you remind people that you're the real liberal, if they care. Most of them probably don't care. Um, so then, uh, of course, the, the Great Depression and World War II kind of cemented in people's minds in America the idea that the free market didn't work. There's so much history behind that, I can't even get into it, but certainly there are are convincing explanations from the free market side that it's not accurate to blame the free market and the Great Depression. Then there's World War II, which increased uh, war centralization. And, and by that time, no one, we're in the situation that Tom alluded to last night, where if you believed any of this stuff that everyone believed 100 years earlier, you're a complete lunatic. And luckily for us, there were a handful of these complete lunatics who, uh, who didn't give up on these ideas. Uh, you know, great heroines like Ayn Rand, Rose Wilder Lane, Isabel Patterson, heroes like Leonard Reed, uh, founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. And 
Uh, so there were a few people out there who sort of saw the New Deal for what it was, uh, saw the, the, the bad side of, of World War II and, and wartime centralization, and they tried to keep alive uh, the liberal tradition. And conservatism uh, arose out of the same ferment. I would argue in the same way that socialism was sort of a, a reaction to, uh, to classical liberalism, uh, conservatism and modern libertarianism were both a reaction to modern liberalism. And if you study the 40s and 50s history of, of this anti-New Deal movement, which I did for my book Radicals for Capitalism, in those early days, uh, the people involved in it didn't necessarily have a sense of a distinction. If you read them in the 40s and 50s, people who we now would look back on as, oh, they were conservative right-wingers, and oh, they were libertarians, sort of saw themselves as part of the same movement. But, but things did arise to distinguish them and uh, certainly, as I said, conservatism at its best was trying to conserve something it believed was great about the American founding. And if you're doing that, you're going to have a very big classical liberal libertarian streak. And uh, many of the early conservatives and many current conservatives did. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't carry these ideas in as pure a form as, or as coherent a form as the classical liberals and the libertarians did. They had sort of wound around their libertarianism both a great sense of traditionalism, uh, sometimes rooted in Christianity, um, which led them to believe in state power over, over certain morals and mores uh, that a libertarian or classical liberal might not recognize. Uh, in the historical context in which they arose, they also had a strong dedication to a militaristic anti-communism that left not as much room as a libertarian would like for either a small state at all or for the classical liberal value of peace. Um, in, in sort of practical political reality, of course, we, we all recognize, uh, or probably we all recognize, that a lot of people who call themselves conservatives uh, are, are putting that libertarian streak to the fore. And I think they're encouraging signs, especially in the age of the Tea Party, uh, that that could become more and more true. I think uh, the general sense, even on the part of people who maybe, you know, as I was alluding to early, people who have never read a work of systematic philosophy since the bailouts, I think, uh, upon what you might call the rank and file of people who consider themselves right-wing or conservative, uh, there, there is a streak uh, of anti-government feeling that is stronger than it was 30 years ago. I mean, interestingly, in the 70s and 80s, it was easy to find people who were anti-tax, right? I mean, no one likes to be taxed. I feel like now you're actually even finding people who have gone to being anti-spending, and maybe they're not anti-spending on the things that benefit them. That's the problem with not studying systematic philosophy. But uh, I, I, I do think that conservatism as an ally of libertarianism, especially as some of the issues that sort of have separated us, their, their, their dislike of certain bits of cosmopolitan variety in life, whether it has to do with immigration or gay rights or drugs, um, just demographically, I think we're seeing that change. Immigration maybe a little less than the other two, but um, the, culturally the culturally conservative aspect of conservatism seems inevitably on the way out, which perhaps will just leave them with that core of libertarianism. I mean, if you look at it, the, the ideas that actually animated conservatism in a political sense 
from Goldwater to Reagan were the free market libertarian side. Like that was the interesting stuff. The only actual ideas conservatives had were libertarian ideas, deregulation, tax cuts. Um, e even I would, you could argue the way Reagan managed to wind down the Cold War, you might argue with the specific techniques, but he, he actually did have a vision of peace, uh, which he, he managed uh, to achieve. Um, whereas the socialists, uh, to get back to libertarians, other enemies these days, uh, Hardly anyone calls themselves socialist anymore. I would say that people who have what I would recognize as a strong socialist streak tend to call themselves progressives uh, or, or leftists. If you live in sort of the world where you hear these people talk, and I hope a lot of you don't, but you know, I, I do, and uh, you, you will notice really recently, like just in the last maybe even six to 12 months, the, the level of attack aimed from these people, who I'll just call them socialists, even because they are really, um, is, is so enormous. Uh, and their recognition, in the same way that Benjamin Tucker recognized in the 19th century that his free market anarchism was the rival of the Marxists for sort of the same audience. It's like, we're, we're, we're going for this goal of a freer, richer world where the little guy is not oppressed. Uh, Tucker saw that his free market anarchism was the great enemy of the Marxists, and I think ma the Marxists recognize that as well. I think nowadays the progressive socialists are also recognizing that libertarians are their greatest enemy for their audience. There are so many things, they, they end up so embedded in modern electoral politics in a way that lots of libertarians don't, that, that they end up sort of handmaidens to the Democratic Party in many cases, and they realize that certain values that they're supposed to stand for, there's you know, civil libertarian values, uh, you know, not destroying the lives of poor innocent people because of the picayune enforcement of idiotic laws, uh, the likes of those. Uh, the libertarian message is, is, is actually uh, super appealing to an audience who wants a richer, freer, you know, groovier, whatever you want to call it, world. And, and they know this, and they're scared, and you can... You can see that fear, and, uh, and it's right uh, that they are scared. Uh, I think, uh, as I alluded to some of the facts of reality that helped shape classical liberalism, uh, larger socioeconomic forces, I think we're seeing a lot of that in the, the digital techno age that we live in. Our ability to manage our lives, to communicate, to accomplish goals without requiring uh, state action, I think, is becoming more and more manifest to more and more people. Um, this, this doesn't mean that we're on the edge of victory, though I think we should be. Um, the, the, the biggest problem, of course, is I think one that Leonard Reed recognized when he started the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, to the extent that we do believe that everyone kind of means well and, you know, wants people to be rich and wants people to be free. Uh, the problem is that the modern liberal, modern socialist, even in some cases modern conservative, looks at the world and sees problems. Maybe that problem is, oh, there's people crossing over the border, or maybe that problem is I see poverty that I don't like, or maybe that problem is I see pollution I don't like, and they, they think that a government forceful solution is needed. Um, modern libertarians and carrying out the classical liberal 
tradition of tolerance, liberty, and peace have, have, I think, improved and tightened and honed and made more sophisticated the arguments that indicate to a person of goodwill that maybe that's not true. And that if you actually are a person of goodwill enough to not actively want a forceful solution, and I do sometimes wonder about that with some of them, but let's presume that they don't want a forceful solution, that the education in how a world can work uh, to make all of us richer, freer, happier to the greatest extent that our own choices allow. Um, it's been a 400 plus year project. It's clearly not over yet. Um, but I do think we're living in, in a technological age that makes a lot of those things easier and a lot of those ideas, especially the idea of spontaneous order, the idea of how things, can, things services, goods, ways of thought can and do arise without a boss imposing it makes me optimistic. Good policy analysis never goes out of date, and two acclaimed Cato ebooks are now available for $1.99 each. The first, The Libertarian Vote, Swing Voters, Tea Parties, and the Fiscally Conservative Socially Liberal Center. The book provides details on the millions of American voters who are now the subject of major news stories on the growing influence of libertarian views and factions on all manner of policies. The second book, Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform, offering the Cato Institute's best work on Obamacare and spelling out in great detail the specifics on how free markets can make healthcare better, more affordable, and more secure. These $1.99 ebooks are available on Amazon and at cato.org slash store. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.